You're listening to episode 40 of the Money Owners Podcast with me, Morgan Rochard. Money Owners is a podcast for people who want to be mentally and financially crushing it. This podcast does not provide investment advice and nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued to be investment advice. If you'd like more information on Money Owners Coaching, the podcast, the homework, and everything I have to offer, visit moneyowners.com. What is happening, my fellow money owners? So I almost got this out on time. (laughs) And actually, I didn't because my husband and I took a nice long weekend away, which honestly we needed. We hadn't been on a date since uh, one of my husband's friends got married in February, so Um, I think that's probably pretty common given what's going on in the world right now, but you know, I don't know, maybe some people are are having a good time. I know my aunt was telling me as she goes out to dinner, um, at like these Florida restaurants that have outdoor space. And on the one hand, it feels a little irresponsible. And on the other hand, I'm like, you know, be kind of nice to just like throw caution to the wind and start living life again. But you know, there's been a resurgence here in Texas, so I don't know how fast we are going to be running to the restaurants anytime soon. Um, Anyways, on other fronts, my book is now in post-production, which is super exciting, and it should be out in August. Like, I I can't even believe it, honestly. It feels like, I don't know, it feels like another baby has been released into the world for me. (laughs) Like my business, and I have my other business, and I have my actual child, and now I have a book. So um, yeah, I'm excited about that. And hopefully everyone listening to this is as excited as I am and you can get your copy soon, hopefully on Amazon. And, um, I don't know if they're going to put it in actual bookstores. Do people do that anymore? Um, yeah, I'm not really sure anyways. So, um, that's what's going on there. And this is a Q and a episode. So we used to run these every five, um, but you guys weren't really submitting that many questions. So I got a little frustrated. Um, (laughs) now we're doing them every 10, but I'm wondering, um, if maybe every 10 is a little bit too long. So I don't know, we'll try to find a balance here, but I got some good questions for this one and I'm excited to answer them. And here we go. So the first one is, Morgan, how do I know if I'm having a financial planning moment? My wife and I eventually want to hire a financial planner, but we don't know if right now is the right time. Please help. Okay, great question. Um, So, well, without knowing more about you, (laughs) other than the fact that you and your wife want to eventually hire a financial planner, um, a major life event is usually what causes people to hire a planner. Um, That's not the only reason to do it, but that's usually why people do it. So you get married or a kid is on the way, or you just had a baby or you're getting divorced or your parents are getting older and you need to support them. Somebody has a health event. Um, you all of a sudden get a large influx of cash because somebody in your family died and they named you as the sole inheritor of something. That's usually a good time to hire somebody, especially if you have never really dealt with any money before, um, or never saved anything before, that would be a great time to hire somebody. Um, really, yeah, any major life event. I'm sure I'm leaving many, many life events out. Um, a wedding is a good one. Um, I think I mentioned marriage, so um, trying to think what else. You're about to buy a house, or you're about to make some other really large, irresponsible purchase that you need to discuss it with somebody. 
<laughs> you're going to retire. Uh, retirement planning is actually one of the major ones why people hire financial planners because retirement has a lot of moving parts. So there's the saving portion of retirement, which is actually the easy portion, believe it or not. Um, even though people in this country and probably everywhere find it pretty hard to save. And that is actually really difficult. But the difficult part of, of retirement is managing distributions and knowing whether or not you're taking either enough out or you're taking too much out and not running out of money and planning for income in retirement and all of those other things. So um, that's actually why a lot of financial planners tend to focus on the baby boomer generation. It's because A, they've probably accumulated enough assets to pay a financial planner, and B, they have a lot of moving parts that actually you know, warrant them hiring a a financial planner. So um, that would be a good reason to hire somebody. You get into an accident and you inherit, um, or you get you get a medical settlement or something like that, um, and it's maybe like larger than you've ever seen in your life. That would be a good time to hire a financial planner. Um, yeah, I can't think of any other major life events. Uh, <laughs> there are other reasons why, though, without a major life event, you would hire a financial planner and you would have be having a quote-unquote financial planning moment. And these are the ones that people don't typically think of when they think of, do I need to hire a financial planner? Everyone kind of thinks of the major life event things, um, you know, things happening in transition. Uh, is typically when people, you know, moving parts are happening. Um, but sometimes putting off taking action, things are staying too much the same, is actually a good time to hire a financial planner. Like you've been trying to save money for retirement, but you can't seem to do it. You've been trying to figure out how to do something very specific in your financial life. And you just keep putting it off and kicking the can down the road and procrastinating. And you have some sort of mental block as to why you don't want to do it. Um, I mean, I would start with results first of thinking like the results that you want to have. So for instance, uh, you can't seem to save. We talked a little bit about this in the last episode with the emergency fund, right? The first thing that you would want to do is imagine having a really nice, robust emergency fund, and that would generate a lot of really good feelings and would probably help you take some action. But if you're finding that even with trying to generate some energy and trying to think of your results first, that you're still not able to take action, like what better time to hire somebody, right? <laughs> Isn't that what that's for is to be like, okay, I'm not able to do this myself. I need a coach to help me, right? Plenty of people will hire a um, personal trainer or a dietitian or somebody like that to help them achieve the goal that they want to have of, you know, losing weight or gaining strength or whatever it is that they want to do, like take control of their health. It's the same thing with your finances. If you find that for whatever reason, you're not taking control of your money, you're feeling out of control, you're putting off taking action, then that's a great time to have your financial planning moment <laughs> and give somebody a call. Um, the other thing I've noticed is when people have questions that require more than basic general content that you can find on the internet. So what happens is that when you're young, you're in your 20s or even maybe in your in your early 30s, you know, you're just kind of like earning money and you don't have that much responsibility and maybe you're not even looking to buy a house or do any of those other things um, that require some more calculations or whatever. And you can just like figure out, okay, I need to save 20% of my income and like, I just need to invest it and whatever. I'm really young. So I have a long time horizon. So I'm just going to like, you know, put it in this, you know, target date stock fund thing and I'm going to move on with my life. Right. That's pretty easy and not something that would, you know, generally require a financial planner. But if you're finding that as you, as you're getting older, you're having more questions about your situation, maybe you're making more money. Um, you're paying a lot of taxes. You want to figure out like maybe how to be better allocating things so that your tax bill is not so high. Um, things like that, where you go on the internet and they have the answer there, but you're like, uh, 
does this apply to me? <laughs> um, I mean, even this podcast, right? We give out a lot of free information here and I'm, and I'm constantly like talking your ears off about stuff, but like sometimes it's really hard to take the general content that we apply here and really put it to your specific financial situation. And that's why I'm always talking about this results first type of thing, because if you can really think about your results first, and sometimes even with general content, you can have it apply to you, but sometimes you're just like, you know what? I really don't know what I need a second opinion. Um, that's a great time to have a financial planning moment. Um, another thing would be like your spouse and you are regularly having money issues and you need a mediator. <laughs> um, I would go back to listen, um, to episode 38 that we just did on this about spouse fights. Um, that should help you out significantly. I hope to get you and your spouse on the same page, but sometimes it's not enough. Sometimes it really helps to have somebody else there. Who's just like, look, like, you have one opinion, your spouse has another opinion. How can we combine these opinions or how can we compromise in a way that you both feel good about and put it to paper? And that way you have just kind of your action plan here that you always do. That's a great time to hire a financial planner. Um, another reason you would want to do it with your spouse is let's say you generally take control of the finances and your spouse just has no interest. Um, sometimes it's nice to have a financial planner there who they know and trust and who they can rely on if something were to happen to you. Um, so I have, I mean, I have people in my practice like that for sure. Um, another thing is you owe back taxes and you can't seem to figure out why this is a great time to, <laughs> to get a financial planner. Um, it generally means that you're overspending, um, but working with somebody can help you figure out where and how and what to do and where to cut and all that other stuff. So, um, yeah, owing back taxes is always overspending. Like you basically think that you have more income than you actually do. Um, I actually wrote a haiku about this and I <laughs> wish I had like pulled it up for this, but basically the idea of it is that when you're a business owner, you, or you really anybody, right? You think of your pre-tax number. So if somebody tells you, okay, I'm going to pay you a salary of $150,000 a year. That doesn't mean that you make $150,000, right? You have to go pay taxes. You probably have benefits that you're going to do. Maybe you're going to put some money into your 401k and then you get a paycheck. I don't know. Let's say like bi-monthly you make four grand or whatever. Um, so you're making $8,000 after tax and after benefits and all that other stuff, right? So you're actually making a little less than hundred grand a year, not 150 grand a year. But the problem is that you, you hear that 150 or you think, oh, I'm getting this $10,000 bonus and you've already spent $10,000 of your bonus, even though you're only really going to get 7,000 of it. So um, that is something to think about for sure. And if you need help with your spending, I mean, you don't necessarily need a financial planner for that, but a financial coach is somebody who can really help you with that. Um, money owners helps with that. Just a thought. Um, you find everything about personal finance unpleasant and you want to outsource it. <laughs> um, I know actually a lot of people who are like this that are just like, you know what? Like I do other things really well and I don't like really want to deal with this at all. So can somebody else just do this for me and like deal with it? And I will like do the other stuff that I do really well that I like a lot. Um, I find that people like that when they work with a planner, they actually get more excited about their finances because they see things happening. And usually if you find everything unpleasant about personal finance, you're probably putting off taking action. You're not really seeing much progress. So um, that's something else to consider. And the last thing I would say if you are having a financial planning moment and you don't know it is when you find yourself gambling with your savings. So I hear about this kind of stuff. We don't do this in my practice, of course. <laughs> um, but... I hear about people who they self-direct their 401k or their IRA, and then they start trading it and they're doing things with really their life savings that they shouldn't be doing. I totally approve of people taking, you know, one to 5% of their net worth if they don't need it 
and having a good time with it. And that's really entertainment for you. I don't approve of people taking any more than that, really. But I mean, I've seen people take their entire 401k and do it, right? Like, that's not a good idea. Do you want to like gamble your retirement savings away? For sure, there, you know, you could be right and maybe you triple your money or whatever, but you can also be completely wrong and obliterate your savings and then end up in a situation where you don't have any money to retire with. And then you need to move back in with your children (laughs) or um, you need to work forever, right? So um, just something to consider. These are just the other reasons why maybe you would hire somebody or you're actually having a financial planning moment, but you don't even realize that you're having one. Okay. I hope that answers your question. Next question. Do I aggressively pay down a large student loan once my interest rate is reinstated, or do I take it slowly while waiting for either established loan forgiveness to for, um, to kick in, like public lo- uh, student loan forgiveness, or maybe one of the presidential candidates will pardon the loans? Okay. So the first thing I would recommend is checking out episode 29 that we did on student loans. We had an awesome guest, uh, Jance Hoffman came in, who's like the ultimate, ultimate expert on student loans. He teaches the program um, and he has many, many clients on this. And I think we answered a question sort of like this, but um, I invite you to go listen to that episode. Um, Regarding public student loan forgiveness. So people were saying that you're not going to get loan forgiveness, right? I've heard this a lot, a lot uh, over and over again, because there was an article that came out with all these people who applied for um, PSLF thinking that they had done the right thing and they were rejected. And the reason why is because they didn't follow the protocols that were laid out in the program. So this is the way public student loan forgiveness or public service loan forgiveness works. You must work full time for the U.S. federal government, the state, a local government, or a tribal government, or for a not-for-profit organization, so 501c3. Um, Then you must have federal direct loans, or you have to consolidate your loans into a federal direct loan. Okay, so if you've got an FFEL loan or a Perkins loan, you're not going to get forgiveness unless you consolidate those into a direct loan. Um, And if you don't do that, you will not get loan forgiveness. And if you do it, you will not get the program doesn't start until you've consolidated. So let's say you made payments for five years, but then you realize, oh, shoot, I was supposed to consolidate all that stuff. And you consolidate your fell loan and your Perkins loan. At that point, that's when it starts after those five years. Those first five years don't count. Okay. So now you have to do another 10 years once you consolidate. Then you must enter into an income-driven repayment program. So you have to consolidate. You have to work for a government or for a nonprofit. You have to consolidate those loans into a direct loan um, or have direct loans. And then you have to actually enter into one of the IDR repayment programs. So you can't just like be paying off your direct loans on that regular 10-year loan um, program. Obvious reasons, right? If you do that, you're just going to pay off your loans (laughs) because it's a 10-year program. Um, And the whole point of this is that you get loan forgiveness after 10 years. And then the last point of this program is that you must make 120 qualifying payments after points one through three that I've just listed are achieved. So um, 120 payments, basically, you know, it's 12 payments a year, so it's 10 years. Um, So you really got to like working for the government or that nonprofit organization or multiple nonprofit organizations, whatever you're doing, right? Because otherwise, you're going to be spending 10 years doing it. And hopefully, you did all those steps so that your tenure started the second you went in (laughs) to working for that government or nonprofit, right? Um, Otherwise, you're not going to get loan forgiveness. So I just wanted to reiterate that because I've heard things about this and people get really discouraged when they go to apply for loan forgiveness and they thought they did everything right and they made their 120 qualifying payments. 
um, but they weren't actually qualifying. They were just payments. Um, and obviously we don't want you doing that, right? The whole point of the public service loan forgiveness program is that you actually get it after 120 payments, not that you make 150 and 30 of them aren't counted. Obviously the government would love it if you made an extra 30 payments because then they get more money. Um, and the thing that's nice about the PSLF program rather than these other income drive driven repayment programs is that not only do you get loan forgiveness, but you also don't get a tax bill at the end of them. So if you're not willing to work for a government or a nonprofit organization, you could still do one of these income-driven repayment programs, but you will owe taxes at the end because basically when they forgive your loan, it's a gift to you. And the IRS counts it as income when you get a gift that's that large, okay? So you would have, you would have to owe taxes. So, But that doesn't mean necessarily you shouldn't do the program. It just means that you have to do the math on the program. Um, and I highly recommend talking to somebody who knows what they're doing, <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to this stuff, um, and has a CSLP and we will link to that in the show notes because those people are highly qualified and I'm not one of them, but, um, I'll leave it at that as far as PSLF is concerned. Um, as far as whether or not you should aggressively pay down your loan or wait for loan forgiveness, I mean, it depends. Like, are you actually working for a government or a nonprofit and you, you have a direct loan and then, and you're in an income driven repayment program and you're making those qualifying payments and you're willing to work? at that place for the next, um, you know, for the whole 120 payments? If so, then great. I mean, I think that's probably your best bet for getting loan forgiveness, and you're probably going to get payoff less than you would have by aggressively paying down that large student loan. If you don't feel like you're going to make it for the, the 120 payments, or you realize after listening to this that you didn't do steps one through three, you've just been making the payments, <laughs> and you're probably not going to get the BSLF, then maybe it's time, and, you're, and you don't actually like where you're working, maybe it's time to reconsider what you're doing and aggressively start paying down your loans or thinking about a different program or anything else. Um, as far as a presidential candidate pardoning the loan, I mean, I don't really know, honestly. I, I find it unlikely. I, I Even if somebody like Bernie Sanders got elected, I think that he would probably be blocked on something like this. Um, and the reason why is this. So there are a lot of families out there that scrimp and save and do everything that they can to actually put their kid through school. Um, and there are also a lot of people who have actually paid down their student loans. Um, and, um, I don't know, it's kind of like the American way. It's kind of, it's almost unfair that those people did everything that they could to get their kid through college. Um, or on the other side, they had loans and they did everything they could to pay them off. And then somebody's just going to come in and forgive people. I mean, I think that it's possible that they, maybe that they do, they do another holiday, um, like they're doing right now where, um, they don't have interest accrue for a while just to give people a break. Um, it is possible that they expand the income driven repayment programs and offer more forgiveness, um, or that they expand the, um, public service loan forgiveness program. But as far as them actually pardoning the loans hundred percent, I, I think it's really unlikely. Um, I'd be interested to hear what other people have to say on the subject, but that's that's my take on it, and I wouldn't be waiting around for it. I mean, in the meantime, while you're waiting for that, your finances can basically blow up in your face. Um, and like, why why do that to yourself, right? <laughs> I mean, even if even if there is like the the world's expert in this saying that that's what's going to happen, 
it might not happen, right? They don't know. And they're not the ones making the policy. So even if you had good information on it, I would still say it's probably more responsible to either be in one of these loan forgiveness programs or to actually just aggressively pay down your debt if you can and move on with your life because you're going to feel a lot better when you move on. I promise you, you will. Everybody I know who's paid off their loans feels so much better when they're done. They just do. Um, and the, the problem with these income-driven repayment programs is that it just goes on for so goddamn long. I mean, like the programs are 20 to 25 years, right? Like it's a really long time to be saddled with debt and waiting for forgiveness and then getting a tax bill. So, I mean, in, in some regards, it's really nice that the public service loan forgiveness program is only 10 years instead of, you know, 20 to 25 years. Um, that's significantly less time. And also, you know, really the amount of time that people generally pay down a loan. Um, but I, I mean, I would hate to see you just put all this stuff off waiting for somebody to come in and pardon your loan, um, while your interest is accruing. Um, and while you could really be doing other things with your finances, if you just, you know, made some changes somewhere else to get those results that you want to have. Um, so really it always comes back to that results first, right? What do you, what are the results that you want to have? Do you want to feel like, do you want to release yourself from the burden of debt? Um, if so, then I would say aggressively pay it down. I mean, that's kind of like, that's been my motto, especially if the interest rate is high. Um, I think the interest rate really makes a difference. I mean, I have um, I have some clients who have less than a 2% interest rate, right? So we're not in any rush to pay that down, but most people don't have that. Most people are looking at at least 5%. Um, some are closer to six or six and a quarter. Um, you might want to refinance if you're that high or um, not refinance, consolidate again. <laughs> Um, through the government and see um, if you are going to aggressively pay down your, a large student loan, um, it might be worth considering refinancing them at a lower rate with a private lender. You do give up a lot by doing that. But um, if that is the route that you're going and you feel like your income is stable and that's something that you can do, then that will save you thousands of dollars in interest. And I hope that answers your question. All right. Next question. What do I do during a crisis time? Am I supposed to reallocate my assets? With COVID, I saw my assets basically obliterate in front of my eyes. And then they did recover, but I am worried because I want to retire in the next 10 to 15 years. And I'm, in, I'm invested fairly aggressively, but I also don't want to lose my shirt in the next downturn and not be able to retire. Okay, great question. So, I mean, it depends. <laughs> So I would look at your allocation. Are you allocated in the manner that you're allocated um, because of your risk tolerance or because you feel you have to in order to retire in the next 10 to 15 years? Um, and this is something that I would really answer honestly. Um, I find that people sometimes do invest beyond their risk tolerance because they don't want to make other necessary changes that they need to make with their spending and their savings so that they can have their asset allocation be more in line with their risk tolerance. Um, that's the number one thing. Um, I tend to like allocations that are a little bit more aggressive, but that said, cutting so close to retirement, it might be time to, to pull back. I don't know exactly what you're invested in, but um, it sounds like you're not comfortable with how you're invested um, and that you're only invested that way because you, you want to make sure you have enough to retire. Um, and 10 to 15 years is not really that long of a time. Um, so, I mean, it is in some regards, right? Because like, I'm assuming you're probably like 50 or 55, something like that, right? You're looking to retire 60, 65 to 70. Um, and then you'll probably have another 20 years in retirement. So your time horizon is actually, you know, significantly longer than the 10 to 15 years. Cause you actually have to make it through retirement, have your money last and all that other good stuff. Um, 
But I would say that the the issue is probably less about your asset allocation and more about your spending and savings. Um, are you saving 20% of your income? Do you know what you're saving? Can you find a way to save 20% of your income? <laughs> Can you find a way to save more than that if you're looking to retire sooner and you really feel like you need to catch up? Um, and I, it doesn't necessarily have to be in a retirement account. I hear this often from people. Well, I can only save $19,500 in my retirement account. So, you know, that's all I'm doing. And it's like, okay, great. But you can also save in a brokerage account. <laughs> You can save in a savings account. You can save, I don't know, um, you could buy a bunch of cryptocurrency. I don't know. You you do you. What I'm saying though, right, is that there's there's not one way to save and it doesn't only have to be in a retirement account. Now, I understand from the perspective, like I have a client who he just found it so difficult to save unless he was saving in his retirement account because he couldn't figure out a way to not spend his brokerage money. So like he would trick himself and he would put money into his brokerage and then he would invest or whatever. And then he would say, Oh, well, I can't sell that because you know, I have a loss on it or I have too much in gains, but then he would go and spend knowing that he had that money and he would just immediately take it out. So he just started only saving in his retirement account. Um, and I would really advise against that. I mean, I would look at your behaviors and decide why it is that you can't seem to save outside of retirement account unless there's penalties on you taking that out, right? Um, and it's usually because there's some sort of allure of what you have right now, um, and you don't really want to change that. And I would invite you to think about what retirement is going to look like when you have to change all of that. Because a lot of the times it's a trade-off and we don't really think about what future me will look like and what future me will have to spend given what we've saved for retirement. And we don't really balance that with our wants and needs with, of right now because right now feels really important. Right now is urgent. Right now I can see, smell, taste, and touch, right? Whereas me in 15, 20 years... I don't know what me in 15, 20 years is going to be like, right? <laughs> or maybe I'll like come into a windfall or whatever, right? I, you know, I don't really know. Um, so I, I find that people often kick the can down the road, but the problem with kicking the can down the road, right, is that eventually you get to the can <laughs> and there's nowhere to kick it. And you're like, oh, poo, like I have to actually make some changes here. So I've seen that on the other side where clients just didn't save enough to retire with their current lifestyle, but they couldn't work anymore. They just couldn't do it. They were not physically capable of working anymore um, and therefore had to change spending habits. And that is really hard to do when you're retiring at, let's say, age 65 and you've deeply ingrained spending habits for the last 45 years. Um, it's much easier to do it earlier than when you have to. Um, that said, some people do a lot better when they have a lot of pressure. <laughs> Maybe that's you. I don't really know. Um, but I would hate to see you feel, I don't know, uncomfortable, sad, unhappy with retirement because you didn't make changes today. So again, it's a results first conversation that you need to have with yourself. What are the results that you want to have in retirement? What is that number that you really want to achieve? Is that something that is achievable with the savings that you have right now? Or is there something that you could do right now today to save more, spend less, and get your asset allocation in line with your risk tolerance? I hope that answers your question. All right, next question. Morgan, do I really need disability insurance? I don't know, do you? <laughs> it depends. Yeah, I'm sorry. It depends. Um, so here's the thing about disability insurance. And I don't want to like go off the rails about insurance here because like we could really get into the weeds and I don't even really like insurance that much. And in fact, I had like a, the most annoying conversation with um, health insurance like for the last month because um, our health insurance from 2018 decided that we had other coverage in 2018. 
Um, and then they decided to deny all of our claims, including the birth of our child. Um, and that was lovely. And I then had to deal with that like for months on end. So, um, yeah, I hate insurance. (laughs) Anyways, not related to disability insurance. Um, but what I would say is it depends because it depends on what would happen to you if you became disabled. So there are certain jobs where if you, Um, the only way you wouldn't work would really be if you were like a complete vegetable. So for instance, my job, right? I can pretty much be a quadriplegic. So if I got into a car accident, yes, obviously my life would be changed. It would totally change. It would be completely different. I would, we would have to make, you know, a a ramp probably in our house or whatever. Um, we would have to figure all sorts of stuff out. We'd have extra expenses related to that. I'd probably have medical bills and other things, you know, other excess medical bills and things. But, Provided that my client still wanted to work with me and my brain still worked and I was able to service my clients the way that I'm servicing them now, then there's kind of no reason why my business couldn't exist. I think it would probably be difficult for me to find more clients because I wouldn't be like, well, I mean, I'm not doing that right now because of COVID, but I wouldn't be like, you know, traipsing around and rubbing shoulders with people and trying to like show them how excited I am about financial planning. Um, that might, you know, that might take a few years <laughs> if I became a quadriplegic, but I think I would probably have a good, a good handle on being able to hold on to my clients right now, or at least most of them, in which case, like, I don't necessarily think that I would need disability insurance. If I went into a coma and became a vegetable, that's a completely other story. But if I did that, right, then at some point, like, I'm probably not coming out of that coma. Um, And, you know, that's a whole other, that's like life insurance, right? Not disability insurance. Um, However, let's say the example everyone likes to use is a surgeon, right? So you're a surgeon, you're a heart surgeon, you need your hands to perform surgery, you decide to go skiing with your spouse and you guys are like, you know, you're a little nutty and you like to hella ski and you get up there and you jump off a rock and you fall on your hands. Okay. (laughs) And no other part of you is disabled, but your hands never work again. Okay. So now you can't be a surgeon anymore because your hands don't work. Um, and you probably want disability insurance because you can take a job, let's say teaching, people how to do heart surgery, um, or not, maybe not heart surgery, but just teaching at a university, but you're maybe only going to make 75 grand a year instead of $650,000 a year. Right. So, I mean, that's something where you really want to consider. So I would say there are some questions to consider before purchasing disability insurance. So the first one is, is my income at risk? If something happened to me, can I work and generate income? If something happens to me, how badly would I need to be injured to no longer work in my profession? Would I be content doing something else if I were hurt? Can I find a similar paying job that I also enjoy if I were hurt? And do I have enough assets to self-insure? And an honest, truly honest discussion with yourself about these questions will give you the answer as to whether or not you really need disability insurance. Alrighty. So that's, uh, the wrap up of episode 40. Thanks for all the questions. I really appreciate everyone who sent something in. Um, even the joke questions that I didn't answer. I got one like that was, <laughs> it was like Bitcoin related. This guy was like, should I sell all my stonks and buy Bitcoin or something like that? Or he was like, or should I only allocate 5% of my assets to stocks instead of Bitcoin? And is that too aggressive? And my husband got like a really big chuckle out of it. And I was just like, eye rolling, but I appreciate that you even asked a question. So thank you. <laughs> but obviously I'm not going to answer that because I know you're just trolling me. Um, and, um, yeah, I, uh, I had a call with a listener, um, last week and that was just really nice. It was nice to hear 
some feedback and to know that people like the show. Um, and so if you do like the show, you can write me a review on iTunes. I read all of them and I really appreciate anyone that does. Um, you can also tell a friend, tell your spouse, tell your, I don't know, tell your mom, tell your dad, tell everyone, you know, say shout it from the rooftops. I love money owners podcast. Um, (laughs) the other thing you can do is if you like me and you want to work with me, you can go to moneyowners.com and you can schedule a quick 30 minute free call with me and see if we'd be a good fit to work together. I would love to help you if I can. And if I can't, then I will send you to somebody who can. I know everybody in this business. (laughs) Um, and yeah, I hope to get these out every two weeks. I'm really trying my best. I really appreciate your patience and, um, thank you as always. And I'll see y'all in two weeks. (laughs) 